Well, North Wake, let's jump right into it. Um, what I'm about to say may shock some of you coming from a pastor, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. The church can be weird. That's right. You heard me correctly. The church can be weird. Now, if you were raised in church and grew up in the church environment, you might not be as aware of some of these oddities as maybe I am. You see, for me, as a young man who did not go to church growing up and did not even come to faith until the age of 22, the church was strange to me. Let me give you some examples. The church has its own strange language. People would say things to me like, how's your heart? Fine, I guess. Or what about give him traveling mercies? What does that even mean? And we had a sweet time of fellowship. Me and my friends didn't talk about the time we hung out together like that. Or he brought the word. Where was the word and where did he take it? Or what about this one? Is that a secular song? Uh, it's the Beastie Boys. Okay. So to an outsider like myself, I found this to be a foreign, a strange language. And not only was the language strange, but the church had its own strange greetings. My first exposure to this came when Shelly and I joined our first church, and the pastor asked us to come down front at the end of the service so that the church could welcome us as new members. And so a line formed, and one of the first ladies came up to me to give me what I thought was going to be a hug, and at the last second, she turned her hip to me and gave me this weird side hug thing. And before I could finish my what was that thought, the hand I had stuck out to say, shake a gentleman's hand, he took it and he grabbed it and he drug me close in and he gave me a full frontal hug. And he says, son, we don't shake hands around here, we hug. Well, I wanted to tell him to go tell that first lady that. But I was in such shock. My personal space had been violated for I couldn't tell you the last time I had hugged my father, much less some strange man I was meeting for the first time. And I think he even rubbed his beard on my cheek when he hugged me. It was a little, it was a little strange. So the church has its own strange language and the church has its own strange greetings. But the thing that I found to be the weirdest was the church's apparent affinity with blood. They sang all these songs about blood. And I'm going to tell you right now, for someone who did not grow up in the church environment, this is weird. Songs like nothing but the blood, power in the blood, come thou fount, and simply the blood. To give you an example, I, wanna, I want you to listen to the lyrics from There Is a Fountain, which we actually sang last week as a congregation. And I'm not going to sing them. I'm going to save you that. I'm going to read them to you. And I want you to listen to these lyrics. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood. That flood of blood lose all their guilty stains. I'm sorry. But you cannot tell me that that does not sound weird. Growing up as a non-believer, I had seen the movie Carrie with Sissy Spacek. 
So being plunged beneath a flood of blood seemed like it belonged in a horror movie, not in God's church. Not only that, Christians can't seem to sing Christmas songs without mentioning blood. If you don't believe me, go back and listen to the lyrics of the first Noel. So it appeared to me that the church had an obsession with blood. But I needed some evidence before I brought this before you today to match my experience. So since I don't know a lot of Christian songs, I went to the premier expert in the field. That's right, Daniel Creswell. And I asked him how many songs, how many Christian songs contain the word blood in them. And so he pulled up a database that he uses for the church. And out of the 964 songs in his database, 135 of them contain the word blood. 135 songs. That's a lot of songs. So the evidence matches my experience. So what's up with the church's strange obsession with blood? Why does it seem so central to our faith? Are we simply a primitive religion with bloodlust? Or is there something substantive behind it? Well, our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22, will hopefully help us figure this blood thing out. So as we do that, we need to pray. Pray with me, please. Father, as we study your word, we ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that you would enlighten our hearts so that we may rightly see you, rightly understand your word, and see your glory. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 15. It says, Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This first verse connects us back to the last section that Greg Matthias preached last Sunday. And if you remember the last verse, verse 14 reads this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So our exposure to blood has already begun. We see here that Jesus' blood, his personal sacrifice, is the only sacrifice that is truly without blemish. And it is the only sacrifice that is sufficient for our purification. Therefore, due to this reality, due to this truth, verse 15 tells us that he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, most of you are familiar with mediators. A mediator is simply someone who serves to reconcile two parties, someone who helps them work things out. So who are the two parties that Jesus is mediating for, and what do these two parties need to work out? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us answer that first question, and Daniel has already quoted it in the worship set. He writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So the two parties are God and man, humanity, us, 
But what did these two parties need to work out? What needed working out between God and us? Well, most mediations that you and I are familiar with have to do with contracts. One party violates the stipulations of a contract, but they want to continue in that relationship. So they bring in a third party. They bring in a mediator to help them reconcile. And a mediator represents both parties, unlike a lawyer who typically represents one party. He's helping these folks to reconcile. And the author of Hebrews draws our attention to the concept of covenants in verses 18 through 21 when he writes this. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Now, the author is referring to the covenant between God and the Israelites after he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And we find this account in Exodus chapter 24. So let's turn there and read what happened. Exodus 24, verses three through eight. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord has said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and he put it into bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people and they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So at Sinai, the people made a covenant with God. After they had been given the commandments of God, they promised to do everything the Lord had said. And here we see this strange practice, this blood thing that we started our discussion with today. Two bowls were filled with animal blood and half was splashed on the altar and the other half was sprinkled on the people. This is a very strange practice. This is foreign to us. This is not how our contracts work. Can you imagine buying a home and walking into your closing into your attorney's office and seeing on that nice mahogany conference table two bowls filled with blood. Now that would be strange, and especially if there was some hyssop that he was going to sprinkle you with with blood. That's not how our contracts work. This is weird to us. Now I've heard of people who have to sign their name in blood, but I've never known anyone who actually did it. So what's up with this blood thing? Well, in ancient days, covenants were ratified or made official by the shedding of blood. Today, we simply walk in with a legal document in front of a notary and have that notary notarize that legal document and make it official after we've signed it. But in their culture, blood was spilt. Animals were sacrificed as substitutes for the covenant maker. And one of the earliest examples of this can be found in Genesis chapter 15. 
Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 through 10, and then 17 through 18. And he, speaking of God, brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And listen to how the Lord responds. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So again, we we see this strange practice that we're not accustomed to. But this is how God made a covenant with Abram. Animals were cut in two. Blood was spilt and each half was placed across from one another with a path down the middle where God passed down between those halves. This would have been a bloody, symbolic ceremony. For the covenant maker, God, is ratifying, making official the covenant by this symbolic act, which basically communicates, let what happened to these animals happen to me if I do not fulfill my commitment to you, Abram. Now, when I was in middle school, everybody was into skateboarding. Okay, skateboarding was the big thing. So I asked my dad for a skateboard. And since skateboards cost money and my dad hated spending money, I didn't get a skateboard. Instead, he found these two old skates that had been put in a corner somewhere. And he cut the rollers off the bottom of those skates. And he took a board and he cut it into a long oval. And he attached those skates to the bottom of that skateboard. So my first skateboard had eight wheels and weighed about 30 pounds. Okay? Needless to say, I was not the coolest kid in my middle school. But eventually Christmas came and I got a real skateboard. And at the time, my friends had one of the biggest half pipes in the panhandle of Florida. It was called Big Blue or the Big Blue Ramp. And he hosted a competition for the local skate shop. And so because I was friends with him, I got to go to this competition. And I actually got to skateboard with one of the top professional skateboarders of the day, Mark Gonzalez. This was pretty cool. So I could not wait to go back and tell my friends in middle school, I got to skateboard with Mark Gonzalez. So the next week came and I was telling all my friends about this and they're like, "Mm -mm, no, you didn't. And I said, yeah, I did. They said, do you swear that you skated with Mark Gonzalez? See, this is a typical response uh, by preteens for an unbelievable story. And I emphatically said, yeah, dude, I skated with Mark Gonzalez. And they ramped it up a notch. They said, do you swear on your mother's life? Okay, we're all familiar with this unfortunate way of getting to the truth, all right? It's it's asked in different ways. You've heard it asked, do you swear on your mother's grave? Or do you swear on your child's life? Now, I'm not condoning this way of getting to the truth. But when a person swears like this, what they're saying is, if I am not telling the truth, or if I do not come through with what I have committed to do, then the person's name that I placed in that statement 
its life should be forfeited. This is how serious I am. This is probably the closest thing we have to what's going on with this ancient blood practice. For the covenant maker symbolically sheds the blood of an animal which serves as a substitute for the individual and in doing so communicates that what happened to this animal should happen to me if I do not fulfill my commitment or if what I'm telling you is not the truth. So in Genesis 15, we clearly see God making a covenant with Abram where he bound himself to this promise by the means of a representative death, the cutting of livestock in half. And this would have left quite an impression on Abram. He would have known how serious God was to his covenant. And since the intended audience of the letter of Hebrews would have been familiar with covenants the author reminds them of this practice that for a covenant to be ratified for it to be made officially valid blood must be shed so now we're getting somewhere with this blood thing the shedding of blood ratifies a covenant but I want to go back to Jesus as mediator for just a moment for we still haven't clearly answered our question as what needed to be worked out between God and man. Why was there this need for a mediator? Well, remember that the people had promised to obey everything that God had commanded. Yet we know that God's people did not keep their promise. When Brian Cahoot preached on Hebrews 8 two Sundays ago, we read this in verse 9 of Hebrews 8. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them declares the Lord. Moses even knew way back then that the people would not keep the covenant when he wrote this in Deuteronomy 31. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands." And not only the Israelites, but all of humanity, every person who has ever lived has disobeyed God. Listen to Psalm 14.3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, sin caused a huge problem, not just for the Israelites whose disobedience broke their old Mosaic covenant with God, but for every one of us. So something had to be done if there was any hope for any of us. This is what the author of Hebrews alludes to when we read in verse 7 of chapter 8, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You see, the old covenant had major fault, and the major fault was people. It was us. Next verses, 8 and 9 of Hebrews 8, which is quoting from Jeremiah 31, says, For he finds fault with them when he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
He finds fault with them. So we are in desperate need of this mediator, someone who will reconcile us to God, someone who will mediate the greatly anticipated new covenant. We needed to be redeemed. We needed our sins to be forgiven. As the second half of verse 15, which we started with, declares, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Jesus, the incarnate one, the God-man, was the only one who was perfectly qualified to mediate between God and man. We needed Jesus who was fully God and at the same time fully man to restore our relationship with God because our transgressions, our sins had severed that relationship. And this is why his death was so necessary as is stated in chapter 9, verse 22 of our passage this morning. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And when we read ahead to chapter 10, verse 4, we read that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So all of those animals sacrificed under the old covenant could not deal with our sin problem anyway. The sacrificial system of the old covenant, all the slaughter of animals and the blood sacrificed in those sacrifices were simply symbols. Copies and shadows, as the author of Hebrews has been telling us, of the substance, the real thing that was to come and now for us has come through the death of Jesus Christ. It is his blood and his blood alone that provides true forgiveness of sins. Now I want to quickly address a question that may arise for some of you here. If you're anything like me, you've got a question that you're asking yourself at this point. How was it then that men like Moses or King David were saved? Men of God in the Old Testament. Richard Phillips is helpful here when he writes this. All those who were saved under the old covenant were saved by the new covenant. Even when they were living under the old administration. Listen to this. By faith they trusted in the blood of sacrifices. And through them they trusted in the blood of Christ. John Piper helpfully adds, the greatness of Christ's achievement on the cross was great enough to release the inheritance of forgiveness, not only forward 2,000 years to us, but also backward 2,000 years and more to them. So the men and women of faith in the Old Testament, the ones that we will hear about when we get to Hebrews 11, were saved by faith as they looked through the blood of animals onto the blood of Christ. On the cross. So Jesus was the perfect mediator of the new covenant. And as we're about to see, he inaugurated or ushered in the beginning of the new covenant by the shedding of his blood. This past year, our country went through a significant change. On October 9th, it was declared that Donald Trump was to be the new president of the United States of America. But even though he had won the election, his presidency did not take effect until January 20th at the presidential inauguration when he swore in with the presidential oath of office. Once the inauguration occurred, the presidency shifted from the old administration, the old president, Barack Obama, 
to the new administration and the new president, Donald Trump. One era ended and the new era begun. So there was this period between the election and the inauguration when Trump had been declared to be the new president, but had yet to officially take the office. The new presidency was not in effect until Trump gave his oath. In a similar way, the new covenant was a done deal long before Christ's crucifixion. Hebrews 8, which quotes Jeremiah 31, was prophesied approximately 600 years prior, but it did not take effect until Jesus' death. And so God's people would have been eagerly awaiting this inauguration. And to make this point, the author of Hebrews writes in verses 16 and 17, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And as we've looked at already this morning, covenants are ratified. They are made officially valid once blood is shed. And the word translated will in these two verses is the same Greek word translated covenant in verses 15 and 20. This is why the NASB reads this. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. So Jesus' blood established his death, which ushered in the new covenant. It sealed the deal. Like the presidential oath of office, his death inaugurated the new heir, the new covenant. And not only did it inaugurate the new covenant heir, it released all the benefits that go along with it. For I believe that the author of Hebrews is making a play on words here with his analogy of a last will and testament. Now the older you are, probably the more familiar you are with wills. Shelley and I actually wrote our first last will and testament, and that is right. It's an oxymoron, first last will and testament, right before we went on our first international mission trip to India and Turkey. And we primarily wrote it to specify who would get our children, Hunter and Brooklyn, in the unfortunate event that we both passed away. But it also specified who would get our inheritance, primarily our life insurance policy. And so Hunter and Brooklyn were to go to my brother Josh, and Josh was to be the trustee of my inheritance, where Hunter and Brooklyn were the primary beneficiaries. Now, Hunter and Brooklyn could not have walked into my attorney's office the moment that Shelly and I put our foot on that plane. That's not how it works. We still made it back safe and sound. We're still alive today. No, for them to get the inheritance, Shelly and I had to have died first. So again, Jesus' death was necessary, not only to ratify and inaugurate the new covenant, which is a far superior covenant. It also secured God's children's inheritance, as is stated in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, I've not personally participated in the reading of a last will and testament, but I can imagine even amongst the grief that there is great anticipation. I wonder what they left for me. I wonder if I will be listed as an heir. Will I get the inheritance? Now imagine that anticipation when the creator 
and sustainer of the universe, the one who owns it all, is the one who's giving the inheritance. What is the inheritance that God gives his children? Pastor Sinclair Ferguson gives some helpful insight here when he says that Jesus actually gives his last will and testament to the Father just before he dies in John chapter 17, verse 24. Listen to this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. According to this passage, the inheritance that Jesus left for those who are called is to be with him and to experience his glory forever. And this thought is supported in the latter chapters of Hebrews when the author looks forward to God's city where Jesus is, where he resides. Listen to these verses, starting in Hebrews 11.10. For he, speaking of Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. 11.16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 12.22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And lastly, 13.14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. The city mentioned in these verses is a city that has God as its designer and builder. It is a city of the living God. It is a city where God is not ashamed to be called their God. And this city is stunningly beautiful because Christ and his glory are there forever and ever. This is why Jesus would call the kingdom of heaven a treasure hidden in a field and a pearl of great price that was worth giving everything else up for. Church, I don't know about you, but I want to be in that city. I am willing to give up whatever it takes to be there with God, experiencing his presence and his glory. I want to be an heir of this inheritance. Which leads us to ask ourselves the question, are we one of the called ones? Will our name be listed at the reading of Christ's last will and testament? Well, the easy way to know if you are one of the called ones is if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. You can identify a time in your life where you realize that you were a sinner and you needed Jesus as your mediator. You needed his shed blood to truly and fully forgive your sins. A time where you were willing to give everything else up that the world offers so that you could have the kingdom of God, the city of the living God where his glory will be experienced for eternity. You see, this has happened to every one of us who have been called. Has this happened to you? Are you an heir? If you are, then today's passage should lead you to supreme humble thanksgiving where you thank Jesus for being your mediator and for reconciling you to God.
where you thank Jesus for ratifying and inaugurating the new covenant, where you thank Jesus for truly forgiving your sins, and where you thank Jesus for securing your inheritance with him in his kingdom, where you will see his glory forever and ever. If you are not an heir, if when we went through those diagnostic questions, you said, it hasn't happened to me, it does not mean that you cannot become one. Today, Jesus offers to be your mediator and to forgive all your sins through his blood, just like he did for every one of us. He offers you an internal inheritance with him. All you have to do is come to him and ask him to be your mediator. This is done simply by placing your faith in him through repentance and belief. You see, his covenant is free. He has already purchased it with his blood. It's a covenant of grace. So I get it now. I understand why Christians are so obsessed with blood. I know why Daniel has 135 songs in his database about Christ's blood that we sing with such fervency and passion. It's not because we're a primitive religion with bloodlust. There is something substantive behind it. It's because this blood is our only hope. This blood inaugurates the new covenant where our sins are truly forgiven and our inheritance is fully secured. This is why we sing songs about the blood. And this is why we celebrate the blood in the Lord's Supper. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So even at the Lord's Supper, the blood is central because it reminds us of his great sacrifice, that he gave his life, that he poured out his blood to be our mediator of the new covenant which fully forgives our sins and fully secures our salvation and our eternity with him. So the table at North Wake is open to all of those who are called, to all of those who have placed their faith in Jesus as their mediator, who are seeking his kingdom above all else. If you have yet to do that, if you don't know if your name will be called at the reading of Christ's last will and testament, then this time is the perfect time for you to seek Jesus as your gracious mediator who can truly forgive all of your sins. So seek him now in prayer as you observe his children worship as they come and as they remember his bloody inauguration. So church, come. Take of his body, drink of his blood, and remember the great sacrifice that purchased the forgiveness of your sins and established your inheritance forever.